Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And I'm so glad you can join us. Uh, For the past three years, CNAS has run a pretty unique program. I think it was one of the first of its kind that's focused on getting national security experts outside the Beltway for discussions about U.S. foreign policy, uh, talking about things like the role of allies, America's role in the world, and so on. Um, The program uh, across the pond in the field started just after the 2016 election when it became clear that there was a real disconnect between Americans and their views about the future of the country. Uh, And so rather than just kind of continuing on with business as usual, uh, CNAS and the Transatlantic Security Program pursued this program, uh, a listening tour really, that focused on these issues. Um, And because we are the transatlantic security program, we've been especially focused on what Americans think about Europe and the transatlantic partnership and how US relations with Europe fit into US foreign policy. And over the course of uh, almost three years now, we've traveled to Pittsburgh, Salt Lake City, Tampa, Grand Rapids, Boise, Milwaukee, Madison, Kansas City, Charlotte, Denver, Dallas, Uh, And we've even traveled virtually to Indianapolis, Columbus, and Little Rock, Arkansas. And on each of these cities, we've met with community leaders, with local government officials, often mayors and governors, with business leaders and university students, high school students. We've heard from all of these groups about what they think about U.S. foreign policy, uh, what matters most and what they'd like to see. Today, we're reconnecting with some folks that we've met along the way, and I'm really honored to welcome Alan Salazar, who's the Chief of Staff to Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock and Little Rock Mayor Frank Scott, and we're going to talk to them about many of the themes that we've explored throughout our Across the Pond program uh, and to hear their constituents' views on many of these questions. So welcome, both of you. Mayor Scott, um, maybe we can start with you and uh, kind of start at the kind of at first principles. And, you know, we've learned and certainly understand when we have uh, come out to cities across the United States that foreign policy is not top of mind for most Americans. It's not the thing um, that they're the most eager to talk about or the thing that makes them most worried at night. Uh, It's more of the kind of everyday uh, necessities. But Setting that aside, when when you do hear from your constituents and folks in Little Rock about the foreign policy issues that they care most about, what would you say is at the top of that list? Well, when you think about, uh, one, I'm privileged to be the mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas, the state's capital city. Um, And so I really firmly believe Little Rock is a microcosm of the United States. Uh, We're both rural and urban at the same time. Uh, And so we have the unique opportunity um, to have that type of um, societal diversity and geographic diversity and the interwovenness of it. Uh, And so when you think about foreign policy, one would say, well, you know, what, what does that matter as a mayor of a state's capital city? And one, you know, it's actually plays quite a role. Uh, mainly because when you think about uh, education and economic development, knowing that they're inextricably linked, uh, particularly from an economic development standpoint, cities and states are no longer competing against each other. We're competing uh, with the world and uh, with it being a global economy uh, in what I would call the information age. 
Uh, and so from that standpoint, we pay attention to foreign policy, particularly uh, with one of the uh, highest grossing um, uh, attributes of our GDP is agriculture. And so the impact of, um, we pay attention to not only the transatlantic uh, partnership, uh, but the Trans-Pacific Partnership and how uh, we uh, sell and, and disperse in our commerce with agriculture, uh, poultry, and, and things of the like. Uh, so it plays a special role in addition to any other component of economic development. And so during the times of the TAP and the TPA, uh, we paid a, a very much attention to it. Uh, clearly, we pay attention to China policy as well. Uh, and so it truly is something that matters because all cities, all states are no longer competing with themselves. We're competing with the world. How about you, Alan? What do people in Colorado care about the most in foreign policy? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, there have been times when foreign policy was right front and center for the community. You know, when we, uh, right after 9-11, for example, big interest in what was happening globally, that tends to kind of, you know, ebb uh, with other with other concerns, I do think the Trump presidency had a impact on on Denver's uh, voters and residents, uh, more heightened awareness of uh, trade issues and America's standing in the world, and concern about uh, whether our standing in the world had, had been diminished. Um, and I found that in conversations with people who I wouldn't ordinarily have uh, have heard foreign policy concerns. Uh, initially, I'd say uh, immigration. The, the, the ban on, on uh, tr travel to Muslim countries was a big thing here four years ago. Uh, there was a significant protest at the airport. Uh, so our year, our, the, the Trump administration, I think, kind of inaugurated maybe a heightened awareness of foreign policy issues. That said, I think the big things that uh, Denver um, residents are concerned about, obviously peace and security, uh, anxiety about trade, uh, climate is a big issue for Colorado voters. Um, and I think just an awareness that uh, uh, COVID probably has brought us all to an awareness that we're a smaller planet and we're a lot closer and connected than we might have felt, a, you know, a year ago. So just to follow up on that, I think it's, you know, I, it really interesting to hear that Americans kind of have a heightened awareness or a sense or, or have reflected on America's role in the world, as particularly under the Trump administration. Would you say that most people were kind of concerned that America's standing in the world had been diminished and degraded and that was something that they found concerning? Or did you get the sense that Americans were happy um, you know, with the Trump administration's kind of pullback from the global stage to kind of offload some responsibility to other actors, kind of in that kind of reflection, what were some of the sentiments that you were picking up on? Yeah, great question. I think, um, I, I don't want to speak for the, for the whole country. I can speak a little bit with some awareness of Colorado's uh, voters. And, you know, Colorado rejected uh, President Trump's reelection by an overwhelming number and was one of the first states reported on election night. Um, and this is un unusual for Colorado because our history has been as a purple state with kind of moderate Republican leanings for most of my adult life. But this, the, the demographics in Colorado has changed. So I think that uh, at least Colorado voters were very concerned about the direction the Trump administration was taking the country, not only in terms of the pandemic, but economic uh, 
uh, issues and and primarily I think the the issue of temperament and and whether the, whether whether this is the right person to lead the country. So I think um, you know that's uh, that, that's that was reflected in Colorado's vote, and I also believe that uh, we have a a temperament about trade that may be a little different than some other states, agriculture-based state, energy-based state, uh, technology industries. So I think the attitude toward free trade is maybe more um, uh, tolerant than in some other, you know, for example, Rust Belt states. Um, I don't want to generalize too much about that because I think people can get bollocked up on trade and, and it's a difficult subject sometimes. But in general, I think Colorado voters are gonna be more supportive of trade, more concerned about America's standing in the world and uh, predictability around things like climate policy and uh, immigrant policy, things like that. You mentioned, Mayor Scott, the China issue and that's certainly an issue that um, has been top of mind and top of list for the foreign policy national security community here in Washington, DC. Um, it looks, you know, we've pursued a much harder line. There's a lot of voices kind of uh, pushing for the United States to take a more hawkish, a harder line with China. Would you say that is consistent with what your constituents are interested in? Or are there other economic incentives at play that, that, that where, in, where that makes people nervous? So to be, you know, to be quite candid, you know, when you're talking to a mayor and, and use the word constituents, there's a diversity in that word uh, because uh, as a mayor, my grandfather often told me that my only job is to pick up the trash, catch the robbers and put out the fires. Anything else that you do is because you love the people. Uh, and so, uh, you know, clearly uh, we have a diversity of audiences who know, not, not that they don't know uh, anything about China policy. It's not a kitchen table uh, demand for them. Uh, but when I'm talking with uh, our business community or I'm talking with our Little Rock Port Authority or the, uh, particularly with the Little Rock Port Authority or if I'm talking with um, senior executives with Tyson Foods and, or we're talking with farmers that are within our community, that does come up uh, and understanding whether how hawkish should we be? Uh, should we uh, be a bit more um, uh, middle ground? Uh, but how do we figure those things out? Because it does have an underlying effect of our economics and the downstream ripple effects of it. Uh, but is it, you know, Miss Springer that, that I'm, I'm going to deliver a, a 98th uh, birthday proclamation? Is she asking me about China uh, policy? No, she wants to make certain that her neighborhood is secure. Uh, she wants to make certain that her uh, children and grandchildren can find a job. Uh, and so uh, from that particular standpoint, uh, it, it, we have to understand that the audience at that point in time for that constituency. That's a that's a great response. I, uh, I, I, I agree. I mean, I came from Jacksonville, Florida, you know, and it's the same thing there. And so for my my question, though, is when do you think um, foreign policy it's, it, you know, goes up the ladder a little bit? And, you know, we mentioned we talked to some other mayors and, and they were saying, you know, after 9-11, uh, people, there was a spike up in people that were interested in, well, how did this happen and where did this come from and this kind of thing. And, you know, I think during the Trump administration, um, you know, there was so much criticism about, uh, you know, our dealings overseas and this type of thing that I'm wondering, 
during the last four years? Did that kind of pop up? Um, you know, the, the president's message about America, um, America first and that kind of thing. Did, or, was, or were people still really more focused on their pocketbooks and their neighborhoods? And, and really, there hasn't been much that's, that's kind of brought foreign policy up in their priority. I would say it, it's still about pocketbook issues, uh, and 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 don't get me wrong. That's not to say that no one in Little Rock is worried about China policy. Um, I often kind of dub it as we're in a bubble, and and the the collective we are the uh, elected officials, the elected official staffs, uh, the lobbyists, uh, the. Um, different organizations in the not-for-profit community, we we pay attention to it. We talk about it. Uh, we're the pundits. We're we're the <laughs> those individuals that really pay attention to it, and that's fine. Um, but the the average person in Little Rock is not worried about it until it affects their paycheck. Right. And so, uh, if you are someone that works at Tyson Foods or works at Mountain Air which is another poultry company. If you are someone uh, that uh, has some type of relationship with an agriculture company and, and those in that chain of the, the vertical and or horizontal chain of that business, and they are laid off as a result of that, then they begin to understand, it, particularly if their kind of downstream leadership shares with them the rationale and the business why for certain things that are happening, then they become interested in foreign policy because it's impacting their daily life. And then they go to where most people go for their information right now. Uh, they go to the internet. They go to social media. Uh, we know right now this past year that 70% uh, of uh, all individuals of particular age received their news from social media. Uh, they didn't receive it from TV. They didn't receive it from radio. Uh, they either saw it on YouTube or they saw it on some type of online advertising. And that's how it's able to happen. And so once it touches the kitchen table, once it touches the paycheck, quite frankly, that's when you start to see more residents to get more involved in having a, trying to figure out an understanding. Now, as we talk about uh, President Trump, I think he, because of his marketing strategy, and he wanted to utilize that, something that most economists and economic development individuals understand it, but he, he was able through his message uh, to get it to the common person and help them understand. And because he painted it in such a picture of, of this is the target and this is what we're going to do to the target. And this is how it impacts you and your paycheck to keep a job or lose a job. And he was able to create that type of correlation. And so I think that is um, the uniqueness and the creativity is to take complex issues simplify them and to create uh, identifiable issues and or solutions to those issues. It's such an important point and is actually something I wanted to ask later on in the podcast, but since you just hit on it here, uh, you, there are uh, some politicians and, and who I think have struggled to cut to the voter and to explain to Americans why foreign policy issues matter. And sometimes it's a very long convoluted way of getting back to why it matters to a particular individual. Um, but what is it about President Trump's uh, communication style or his ability to do that that you think was so effective? And I ask because no matter who's in the White House, I think it will be increasingly important that people are able to communicate to voters 
why certain issues matter. Why is it important to Americans that we are in NATO? Why is it important to Americans that we remain in the Iran nuclear agreement? Why is it important to Americans that we that we are in the Paris Climate Agreement? And I think what you what we have seen for a long time are probably some very long arguments about why it matters and people kind of just lose the bubble or, or you know, we maybe we never make it back down to the, to the average American. So what is it, you know, what do you think if you were to kind of distill some of the best practices, even from President Trump, that he was so able to kind of break through and reach out to average voters that you think would serve any future uh, president of the United States to be able to make those direct communications and get American voters invested in certain policies so that we don't find ourselves kind of swinging from side to side every time the administration turns over. I think one of the things, whether it's uh, what's communicated is right or wrong, you just have to say it. Uh, And so that's what we learned from President Trump is his ability uh, to share what was on his mind uh, and say it in such a, um, uh, take complex issues, but make it very simple in the standpoint of understanding, this is the issue, I'm the person that's going to help you achieve it and move forward. And so, for again, just say it. And I think that's what we have to find uh, uh, as we move forward from a communication standpoint is not to be afraid to share the truth, your truth, uh, whether uh, individuals agree or not, I think so many times we try to figure out how do we thread a needle to appease every audience uh, that you're trying to speak to rather than just kind of being on the right side of right. Uh, I'm not, and I'm not saying what he said has been right or wrong, uh, but as an individual elected official, you have to share your right. Uh, and, and understanding when you share your right, uh, others will disagree, but if you say it, uh, and you're able to communicate in a very simple way, it then garners attention and it garners followers and followers not on Twitter, not on social media, but followers in understanding your aspect of your North Star uh, as you move forward. And so I take, for instance, we're, we're going through some issues here in, in Little Rock as relates to uh, police reform and accountability. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a North Star for my administration to move forward, to lead and lean in uh, and sometimes you have to have uncomfortable conversations. Uh, but I'm a firm believer that the voices of the voiceless will eventually be heard loud and clear. And so uh, to ensure that the voices are heard in a very productive fashion, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations. And so you are comfortable to eventually become comfortable in the standpoint of understanding the diversity of the array of those voices so you have the value to move forward. And so I think that's what we have to all find ourselves is just to just say it. You know, one thing that um, <clears throat> that has been um, interesting for me over the past, uh, gosh, month or two after the election was a lot of the European embassies here in Washington and uh, the attaches there, uh, um, they, they come up to me and they they say, well, what can we think about the future? Not just not just a President Biden administration, but but into the future, even after him, in terms of the U.S. view about Europe or the U.S. participation in NATO. Uh, and I raise that because it's uh, you know our expertise here is Europe and NATO, and uh, and we in our little bubble we assume everybody knows what that is and everyone's supportive. And uh, the last four years was a bit of a wake up call. But one of the things I've told my 
colleagues, I said, look, you know, uh, during the election and during the four years of Donald Trump, there wasn't really uh, by the administration any kind of attack on Europe or NATO. This was, you know, this is, you know, President Trump said some things, but uh, in terms of the United States, I think NATO and, and good relations with Europe is still something uh, popular. And I think that we'll see that into the future. So as you have talked to Coloradans about this and folks in Denver, am I lying to them or not? <laughs> what's, the, what's the feel that you get in Colorado? So that's a great uh, uh, frame, Jim. I, I think people don't focus too much on um, the details of the transatlantic partnership and alliances. Um, to the extent they think about it at all, it's usually in the context of headlines about uh, you know, Russian cyber attacks or, um, you know, when there's a NATO summit, they might be flashing on it a little bit. Um, but Denver's, I think, our location in the middle of the country uh, puts us in a somewhat unique place. Our airport is a significant asset. I think we have about 25 international flights, and that's really our port of entry. You know, we're stuck in the middle of the country. We don't have a traditional port, so we're not always outward-faced except through the issue of economic uh, interactions and trade interactions. So I don't know that if you ask the average Colorado, hey, what do you think the health of our relationship with NATO is? I'm not sure that they would have much of a detailed response. Um, I do think there's an awareness of Brexit. Uh, I think there's been an awareness of tension in the relationship with our traditional allies, Great Britain, UK, Germany, uh, there's an awareness of uh, President Macron in France. People are aware of his tension with the Trump administration from the from the start. So I think, uh, and, and Colorado voters are are more educated than other, um, uh, have a higher education level compared to other states. So people are um, aware of and interested in and reading about things. But I don't know that, uh, you know, if you asked people, gee, do you think things are going to significantly change with President Biden? Um, I don't know what answer you'd get. My guess is people are aware of uh, Biden's history in international affairs and international work um, and probably draw some comfort from that experience level. The Trump presidency has been a roller coaster, whether you're supported or not. It's, it's been unconventional. And I think that uh, sense of uh, shakiness, like what's going to be the next tweet, what's going to be the next crisis, uh, people have been very much aware of that. There's a lot of talk about the trip to uh, North Korea or the the, the, uh, the interactions with North Korea, North Korea's leader uh, by President Trump. There was a lot of anxiety at the beginning of the year when uh, uh, with the Soleimani uh, uh, assassination. So that there's that kind of thing, but it just kind of ebbs and flows depending on the crisis and what's on the headlines. Thank you. Yeah, well, one of the things you you also highlighted, which is kind of an area where there's certainly a lot of common ground between Denver, Colorado, and Europe, is the climate issue. So obviously in Europe, that's kind of at the forefront of what they're thinking about. I wonder if you can just say a little bit about kind of what you all are working on um, in, in that sense. And also, I mean, if, if you were able to advise the Biden administration or kind of what, reflecting on kind of what folks in Denver would want to see out of a future kind of climate policy and, and how that should be prioritized. Yeah, Colorado has a long history with energy production, traditional energy production, oil and gas, coal. Um, so we've, we've had a, we've had, a, I mean, the state began as a, a state that was primarily about mining. 
So our history is very much energy connected. In the last 20 years or so, there's been a greater awareness of climate and environmental challenges associated with traditional energy, and particularly with younger, younger people. So for Denver, um, Denver's been part of and supported um, uh, the, uh, the Paris Accords. Um, Mayor Hancock's predecessor, Senator Hickenlooper, who was mayor of Denver, uh, went to Copenhagen when that initial climate um, summit was held back in the early, part, early 2000s. So Denver's uh, connection to climate has a long and, and, uh, and uh, deep history. Our uh, goal, it's an ambitious goal, is to uh, limit carbon emissions by, or cut carbon emissions by 100% by 2040. So we have a very aggressive uh, program in the city to turn the city as green as possible in terms of our sustainability strategies. Um, voters here just passed a sales tax increase that will put 40, 40 million more dollars a year toward uh, uh, climate uh, strategies. So that's an issue that I think Denver uh, will lead on and uh, look for international partners to, uh, to support that work and for us to support their work. You know, um, as you've gone around Denver and you've talked to student groups and maybe you've had interns come into your office and uh, friends of the family and, and others uh, of that next gen, you know, as we call it, the next generation. Are you yep. finding that um, this next generation is is interested in um, foreign and foreign policy going into that kind of line of work? I, I ask that because um, I've noticed that uh, when there are big things happening around the world after 9-11, for instance, or whatever it might be, that there's kind of an uptick in phone calls that I get from young people who are saying, I really want to go and work in the Pentagon. How can I, you know? Are you seeing that at all um, if, with this new administration coming online and, and the experience of the last four years? Or is the next gen, are you seeing them uh, in the Denver area starting to have an, an interest in foreign international relations? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And I, maybe I have to filter it through my own interest in the topic. So I may see it in, in people when, it, when it's not there. But I would say of the young people I've interviewed for internships in the mayor's office, um, a fair number of them have degrees in international economics or international studies, and a lot of them want to have an internship in Denver and then want to go to Washington and work for a think tank, uh, wow. like, like the, uh, you know, any number, the Council on Foreign Relations work, that kind of thing. So I have helped a fair number of young people uh, get landed in Washington-based uh, uh, work. Um, I don't know if it's an uptick. I think there is an awareness of um, how interconnected we are. I think COVID will cause people to think again about how small the planet really is. And we are not an island. It's not America first. It's America plus everybody else. Uh, so I would not be surprised. We have the Graduate School of International Affairs at Denver University, uh, where uh, you know Madeleine Albright is often a, a guest speaker. Dr. Ved Nanda, who's a distinguished uh, scholar there and former uh, U.S. Ambassador Chris Hill was there for a while. So Denver has a, a community that's focused on global affairs and uh, there's a, uh, it's, it's been mostly older people, but I've noticed uh, the uh, influx of some newer, younger people. I, I wouldn't say it's overwhelming, but I think it's, it's there in ways that you might not find in other cities. So there's been certain things that this president has said, for example, in, in, in our um, transatlantic community, for example, kind of calling into question the utility of NATO 
referring to allies as free riders. I mean, those are things that, like you're saying, very simple, direct messages that people can immediately understand what he's saying. But to what extent do you think that resonates um, with folks in Little Rock? Are those messages that were sticky and that people agree with or, um, or, or not? And I guess it gets at the larger question of what do you think folks in Little Rock see as the United States role in the world? I mean, because there is this debate that we should be more active on the international stage, um, whereas others are calling for us to kind of turn inward, do more for ourselves, take care of our own interests. And so how would you say, um, how, how does that, what does that debate look like in Little Rock? I think it's both and, um, and the understanding of how, um, and depending on what spectrum that you're on at that point in time is how much do we lean in leaning into ourselves as a nation or leaning into other nations by being the leader uh, of this global world together. I think uh, first and foremost, uh, whether you're from Little Rock or Pine Bluff or Fayetteville or ben, Benville, Arkansas, uh, we want the, these United States of America to be not only a leader, but a global leader in a world power. And so I don't think you'll ever see uh, a resident of this city of the state who does not want our nation to maintain power and respect amongst the other nations and to be the leader. Uh, you're going to always have that sense of pride, uh, just as we have a sense of pride as we pledge allegiance to the flag. Uh, but also there are times when we know uh, that uh, there's so many issues going on in the world. Do we have to choose to be involved in every issue? when we have our own issues uh, that have gone unattended to. And so I think what we're starting to see is a shift of understanding, yes, we may have to focus on the Paris Agreement. Yes, we may have to focus on uh, what's going on with the Transatlantic Partnership. Yes, we have to focus on which tariffs have an impact on our paychecks, but also uh, what are we doing to end the cradle to prison pipeline? What are we doing to do criminal justice reform? What are we doing for, uh, uh, for a number of different uh, aspects of equity and economic development and equity and social impact and eradication of racism and the list goes on. And so we first have to take care of home so we can truly lead outside of the home. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's uh, that's exactly right. I you know it's a uh, it's a view that I, I think you, you hear from most of the country, quite frankly, when they think about it, is uh, is fixing your problems at home before you get out and stir up trouble elsewhere. Um, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking of Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, we've been in there for so long. A lot of people forgot uh, how we ended up there, you know, um, Afghanistan and, of course, 9-11 and Iraq was George W. Bush. But, but um, you know, is there, are things like that, if, if I were to, um, to, to walk the streets of Little Rock and, and stop and, and talk to someone about something like that, like Iraq, Afghanistan, which is, you know, right there in your face uh, in terms of an issue, I mean, at least it feels that way. Um, I, uh, I wonder if they, if, if the response you might get would be, well, that's an example of, uh, of where we, we got out in front of things. Instead of fixing things at home, we found ourselves messing around in those countries and we're still there and we can't get out. And that's not what we like to see. And, and, um, 
I mean, I'm, I guess I, 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 I'm not asking specifically for that a view on Afghanistan and Iraq and whether it's right or wrong, but more if, people, if citizens kind of wonder what's going on in Washington, how, why are we over there? Why haven't we been able to get out? Um, um, or, or does that not really, uh, that's still not, that kind of thing isn't really a priority, uh, just so outstripped by, you know, the domestic concerns. Well, I think it's always a priority because it's the men and women of our armed forces that are waking up every day to put their life on the line to ensure that we all have liberty and freedom. Um, uh, but, but that aside, is that a conversation that I often have um, uh, over breakfast or lunch or coffee or just a general constituent call? No. Um, and, and most times if, they, if, a, if it does comes up is because it has a personal relationship with the individual that I'm visiting with that right. their son or daughter just left to go to Afghanistan for the third, the fourth, the fifth time. Uh, and, and then we begin to realize that we don't even remember why we're there in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so from, from that context, yes, uh, I think once it hit, just like we, we talked about it hitting the paycheck, when it hits your household, uh, it becomes an issue that when it's time to engage on that topic, uh, that our residents definitely have an opinion uh, because um, they may have lost a loved one or their loved one was injured while overseas. Uh, their loved one uh, may have been, take case in point, there are a lot of loved ones who have gone to Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait, what have you. Uh, they've served their duty uh, but they have transitioned their lives there uh, to have different contractor jobs and they meet, you know, a spouse and they ha and they still haven't come back home uh, because of it. And I think that has an impact uh, that uh, and an undertone that we often don't discuss. I think we definitely uh, for the um, forward movement of every city, uh, we as leaders have to be as informed as possible. So when a constituent, when a resident comes and has a concern, A, we're aware of it, uh, B, we can uh, accurately discuss it, and C, figure out ways if within our own purview, how do we connect the dots for that constituent, whether it's through our federal delegation uh, or through the federal government in regards to different agencies from that standpoint, understanding the NGOs that are impacted and involved. Uh, so yes, we have to do, and I think it takes uh, elected leaders who have to have some type of working knowledge of national security issues, um, uh, particularly in, in, uh, in Europe and Russia and other areas, and how that impacts our uh, nation. Um, when you think about cybersecurity and you understand when you're thinking about the election re-engineering uh, re of, of the 2016 election that's factual, and understanding that it has happened and how do we fight against it. And we saw tinkering that were going on in 2020 and how we have to show um, discipline uh, and resolve, but also to say, hey, this just ain't right. Uh, and how do we figure that out? And because it's now challenging our democracy, it's challenging our fabric of our nation uh, when you have foreign countries that are being involved in that way. And so all the more, it, it, we have to have a presence uh, in the global world. We have to have a presence with the United Nations. We have to have a presence with the G8 or the G20. Uh, we can't uh, seclude ourselves from the world if we are truly the leader of the world. 
And Alan, the same question for you. Uh, how do you think about the melding of foreign and domestic policy? And do we need Americans to see a role for themselves in national security? Yeah, it's always hard to compare with other communities I'm not familiar with. But I would say um, uh, the presence here of, uh, of our military community, particularly in Colorado Springs, we have the Air Force Academy, you have Cyber Command, you have, there, there's always been an awareness that um, uh, Colorado is, uh, I guess initially, we, we were worried about being a target for uh, a nuclear attack during the Cold War. Uh, because of our military installations. So I think Colorado, and we have a high number of uh, military retirees and people who are uh, connected with, uh, with, uh, with the military, particularly in Colorado Springs, which is not that far from Denver. So I think there's always been an awareness that we have a national security profile in Colorado. The new thing, the new element that you just des described is cybersecurity and a sense of vulnerability around uh, foreign uh, attacks. Uh, this is front of mind for me in the city because of the vulnerability that cities have to uh, cyber attacks. And you've seen some examples where whole systems were shut down or cities were held ransom from private actors. So the introduction of an international, uh, you know, a, a state attack, uh, I don't mean a state like one of the 50 states, I mean a state actor like Russia or China is very concerning. I just had a meeting yesterday with our technology services director. We were talking about the uh, latest Russian attack on the federal government and the uh, entity that they attacked, I'm blanking on the name now, but we, we use that service in Denver. So we need, immediately began to worry about whether or not we were vulnerable because of that um, intrusion. It, it's, we're gonna make some effort to, uh, you know, cleanse our system and, and there's no indication that we were part of the attack, but it was an example of the vulnerability. We get between 150, 200 cyber attacks a day, uh, just that we have to fend off. So when you think about the, you know, somebody in the, in the country doing that, a domestic uh, attack for uh, you know, ransomware or whatever, that's one thing. But if, to, to, to think that you might be the victim of an attack by uh, by Russia, that's that's pretty daunting for a city uh, with our budget and our and our limited capacity. So your question is, do people know this? I think there's a greater awareness of it. The uh, debate about cyber attacks on on the uh, election system, I think that certainly got headlines, and um, we're, we're, we've been aware of the potential for that to happen in in our in our uh, in our uh, personal lives as well as our you know the professional lives. Closely related to that. So do you think that folks in Little Rock are concerned about like disinformation? I mean, I mean now there's there's domestic sources, but foreign actors, Russia in particular, but Iran was in the game in this last election. I think we could expect China to kind of follow follow suit. So there, do you think that, that people are concerned about the information environment? Um, and then the broader question is how concerned do you think folks are about the, the health of our democracy? Do, is that something that people are worried about? Is there anxiety about that or, or are people feeling okay? Well, I, I definitely, uh, to kind of start from the second question back to the part of the health of our democracy, I think um, our democracy was recently test, tested. Uh, and, and yet again, 
year after year, election after election, uh, we stand up to the test. Um, um, whether it's a Supreme Court saying, Texas, no. Uh, whether it's um, governors uh, of a particular party saying, no. Um, we understand that we are a nation of ethics. Uh, we are a nation that is highly instilled in a democracy where our forefathers came from other countries uh, to come here uh, and, and to start a new way. And while it's challenged and it has its imperfection, uh, we have uh, standed that test of that resolve. And so I firmly believe, uh, yes, we believe in our democracy. Uh, the health is good. Uh, do we do we need some improvements? We all do. I've never been to the doctor. The doctor didn't say that uh, it, you need to do not do better on something. So uh, I think that's just a part of life. So I want to be very clear on the health of our democracy. And I think uh, the very nature with all of the challenges and we are on January 20th, we're going to see a smooth and safe and secure transition of a new president that hasn't gone without its challenges. Uh, and this is not the first time. Uh, we saw this in 2000, some 20 years ago, uh, without a pandemic. And, and, and we're able to still have a transition uh, uh, from then Vice President, uh, well, from President Clinton to uh, President uh, George W. Bush, uh, and, and with its own challenges with Florida. Uh, so the health is good. Uh, we've been there before, not this way, uh, but even with the new challenges, we, we still were successful. As it relates to disinformation, I think what you're starting to see uh, is within our residents in Little Rock and maybe the state of Arkansas, we're starting to see a pull back on political information in the first place and a disinterest in that uh, because of um, the increased activity of disinformation. And we're starting to see less people be involved in wanting political information. And so that's why we have to figure out uh, while you start to see more information that is being disseminated via digital or online and through social media. Wow. Well, that's uh, th that's a great response. I uh, I you know I kept thinking uh, if if you were advising the Biden administration in terms of um, of you know how he might do something differently in terms of the, the American people and foreign policy. Uh, you know, if he if he were to take a different road than Trump did, I mean, it wasn't that Trump raised foreign policy and NATO and things like that all that often. I mean, he did if he was there, but he had his mind on other things. Um, but you have Biden coming in. He's more of a foreign policy president. He's got a lot of domestic issues to deal with and important ones. Um, how would he, you, you know, how, what, what would, what should he do differently in terms of trying to engage the American people. And I, I'm thinking about Little Rock. Do you think that um, really, as far as you're concerned and, and what you've heard with folks in Little Rock, they've got a pretty good grasp on things. They don't need Washington to come into Little Rock and say, this is what you need to know, you know, that things are fine or really that Biden should pay more attention to engaging the American people in foreign policy things because the future is going to involve a lot more foreign policy than, than they might like. Well, I think one of the things that we're going to see um, uh, from the Biden administration, one, as, as you already shared, is uh, very deep knowledge of foreign policy. And I think we, we, we forget uh, how long he was in the U.S. Senate uh, prior to even being the vice president. Uh, 
yeah and the 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 width of the right relationships and uh that he has internationally and his understanding uh but we also have to understand just like um president trump has a unique way of taking complex uh aspects and simplify them so does uncle joe and 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 so my advice uh, would be to him is uh, you know never steer away from your internal self don't try to be someone else be uncle joe and, and that's what's helped him uh to get elected uh he's always had uh his certain flair and, and utilize that flair in those time time and tested and tried uh characteristics that he possesses uh to speak uh to the people of little rock and Arkansas and the United States and to help us understand why we need to be in the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Help us understand why we have to be more engaged uh, with the United Nations. Help us understand why we need to have a relationship with, with Europe and understanding the impact of Brexit and all of the all the like and the different things that are going on and how it impacts our nation. But particularly, how does it impact uh, those uh, who may not even have a kitchen table? And they're working to move uh, to have one, to have a roof over, the, uh, over our heads and things of that nature. And I think he has that special connection of, of talking uh, the king and queen's language, but also still having a common touch. Right, right. Uh, another theme that regularly comes up uh, or has come up in the Across the Pond program is that um, the government in Washington, D.C. has done a relatively poor job at articulating why U.S. foreign policy should matter for the average American. Uh, what do you, if you could advise Washington about how they could do this better to kind of be able to make a better case for connecting with the average American to explain why some of these events should matter to them. Um, what what would you like to see more of? What do you think the foreign policy national security community could do better? Wow. Well, it's uh, I guess the issue of um, communication and and education uh, not being so insular, uh, which is easy to say because the inboxes get filled up. And um, I think uh, having a a sense of connectivity to that to to uh, the decision makers. Uh, you know, we have a very robust sister cities program. I think that's a, a nice exchange program that I'm not sure every city takes as seriously as we do. Um, certainly, um, uh, the, the immigrant community uh, is, a, is a reminder that we have the possibility for connections. Um, I think if I was advising the Biden administration on how to educate people uh, to the importance of the importance of uh, foreign affairs, and international relations. I think I might go through the lens of economic recovery. Um, seems to me that one of the strategies that we're going to try to deploy to have a robust recovery from COVID is to recognize that opportunity for trade and economic development outside of our own borders. The worst thing we could do, and I think people understand that, is uh, try and uh, uh, become even more insulated. Uh, that'll make the economic uh, That'll extend the pain and, uh, and and retard economic recovery. So I think the people people ultimately I think care about their jobs and their livelihoods and what they can put food on the table and educate their kids and that's cent central to their lives. So to the extent we can make it clear that 
foreign affairs and international relationships affect that, uh, the better. It's not something that you know, is scholarly and it's thousands of miles away and people are thinking about it and I don't need to worry about it. Um, we have to break that cycle. People need to understand we're more connected. What advice would you give along those same lines to the European nations? You know, our, our program and our podcast uh, is, you know, heavily uh, followed by Europeans and European governments and the embassies in town. As Andrea said, usually we bring along um, ambassadors from Washington to come talk. But what can they do more of? If you're advising an ambassador in Washington, is it visits to uh, Denver uh, and uh, this type of thing? Or maybe they host Denver students to come to their embassy for a week and shadow them. Or uh, maybe uh, when a European head of state and government comes to Washington for meetings, they hop a plane to Denver and, and have a, get a key to the city or that type of thing. So what would you, what would you advise uh, the, the Europeans to do? Well, you know, Jim, I, I, we've had the opportunity with, uh, with Weimar to travel around the world and visit European uh, capitals. We, we were, in 2018, we were able to go to Paris and Munich and, and the Netherlands. And I was, I was just amazed at how interested people were in what we were all about. I was also um, disappointed that uh, we would meet people and they would not know enough about Colorado or or Denver in particular, they tend to think of the United States as on the coasts. Uh, so I would invite more interaction, just like you suggested. Uh, get, get away from the coasts. America's bigger than New York City and Washington and San Francisco and LA. We, uh, we have a whole uh, uh, culture and uh, opportunities to meet people and make relationships that are um, more interior geographically. And Denver obviously would be one of those places that uh, I would recommend that people think about for visits, for interactions, um, educating students, getting to that next generation, as you implied, is so important. Um, breaking down the barriers and maybe thinking about our work differently. Um, maybe one of the benefits of COVID is that we get opportunities like this that probably wouldn't have occurred to me to have a Zoom call with your organization. So uh, maybe that's one of the benefits that we can break these barriers down and have more interaction. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was really, uh, it's been a fantastic discussion. It's fabulous. I, uh, this is just the kind of thing that we in Washington particularly need to hear. And it couldn't have been delivered uh, any better. So thank you all so much.